Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Startup investing follows trends, and following these trends is an easy way to raise money. Two years ago in Tokyo, everyone was starting food delivery businesses. A year ago, it was AI related companies. And now, of course, at coffee shops around the world, founders are trying to figure out how to graft a cryptocurrency onto an existing business model and launch an ICO. Of course, after you raise the money, you've got to grow the business. And that's always hard. But it's even harder when you're competing against a hundred other funded startups with the same business model. No. Long term, the companies that win out are either those who are doing something no one has thought of before, or those doing something so boring that everyone has thought of it, but they're doing it in a way that puts them out in front. Today, I'd like to introduce you to one of those companies. Yu Tanaguchi is CEO of Vesper, the creator of Table Solution. It's a SaaS service similar to OpenTable, in that it helps restaurant owners manage their reservations better and better understand their customers. You might not have heard of them yet, but you will. They have thousands of paying customers, including some global chains, they're profitable, and they're beginning to expand globally. The business model itself is interesting, and you also have some great advice and some counterintuitive insights about selling to mid-sized companies and the dubious value of the freemium model in general. But you know, you tell that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Yu Taniguchi, the founder and CEO of Vespa, makers of Table Solution, an online restaurant restaurant management platform. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Table Solution is, is, is in a super competitive space. So let's talk a bit about what it is. Super competitive. Um, a lot of people think that Table Solutions competitors are companies such as Gurunavi, Tabilog, OpenTable. Uh, that's totally different, actually. The current situation is that restaurants um, accept reservations from various sources, such as phone reservations, reservations from Tabilog. They have to manage all these reservations. It's, it's usually done by a notebook, paper and pencil. So our competitors, direct competitors, are paper and pencil. In that regard, OpenTable is actually our competitor. They not only provide media for the consumers, but also they provide reservation and customer management system, which would be used by the restaurants. Right. And your model is, is similar to that, right? I mean, you're providing a customer CRM solution, a reservation solution, a general table and guest management solution for restaurants, right? Yes. So the difference between OpenTable's business model and our business model is OpenTable charges cover fees, which means that every time a customer makes reservations using OpenTable uh, website, the restaurants have to pay fee to OpenTable, whereas we charge nothing. So the restaurants would usually link to our reservation page 
uh, from their website, from their Facebook page, from their Instagram account, instead of linking it to OpenTable. Right, and you charge like a flat monthly fee of it's like a twelve thousand yen to thirty thousand yen, depending on size, right? Twelve thousand to twenty thousand. And you don't have a like a free tier, right? All your customers are paying customers. Yes, exactly. Yes, I really like that business model. It's there's a certain clarity to it, and I'm interested in your opinion on this because I think in like in B two B sales, it's just as hard to get a customer to switch to a free product as it is to get them to switch to a product that costs 10,000 yen a month. Mm. I mean, because they have to invest, it's not the 10,000 yen a month. I mean, they've got to retrain staff. They've got to spend a lot of their time. Has that been your experience or did you experiment with like a free tier at the beginning? Mm, That's a good question, actually. Um, We did think of various scenarios such as charging advertisement fees to companies who want to approach the restaurants and uh, provide uh, our solution completely free to the restaurants. But instead, you know, every time they log in, they have to, you know, see an advertisement. Well, our conclusion was that we, we interviewed like 300 restaurants prior to releasing our product. And uh, they all said, you know, they would be willing to pay roughly like, you know, $100 a month if their operations become smooth, you know, if their operations become automated. So we decided that, you know, it's, it's better to start charging the restaurants rather than going for a freemium model, which usually, you know, the conversion rate is really low. And well, to be honest, you know, we, we didn't have so much cash in our bank account. So, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to charge, you know, customers right Revenue away. Revenue is nice. Yeah. yeah. You're also offering CRM solutions to the restaurant. Is it mostly simply retaining and organizing information about the guests, or do you offer services like connections to social media, more marketing-focused features as well? Right now, we're still providing a very fundamental CRM, which is you can see that how many times the guests have visited your restaurants or your chains, or you know what their allergies are, uh, what their likes and dislikes are, etc. Or, you know, customers who have spent more than X amount of money in their history. In the future, we do plan to enhance the CRM feature. And we want to help the restaurant's marketing or even suggest a better marketing uh, resource distribution. The restaurants currently don't know how much the customer is spending, how many times they're repeating, what their lifetime value is. Right. A couple years ago during the Groupon phenomenon. It it took restaurants a while to realize that the customers they were bringing in weren't providing long-term value. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Groupon model is uh, not working. No, no. (laughs) No. But it took them a while to figure it out. (laughs) It's it's a steep discount. It's a bargain hunters. More than just, you know, just gathering the bargain hunters, I wanted to help the restaurants, you know, convert the customers into repeat customers. Of course, it's a very good way to advertise restaurants. You know, prior to that, it was almost impossible for restaurants to advertise on any other media. But on internet, it's free and you can access to like, you know, millions of consumers. So that, that was innovative. Yeah. And also the other thing that shocked me was that people were paying upfront for restaurants, for dinners. This never happened prior to Groupon. On the kind of the Groupon and daily deals business model, do you think that 
it can be saved or is it just fundamentally flawed? It can be enhanced. You can access to the consumers. This is a very beneficial thing for the restaurants. Hmm. But the what's lacking, what's completely missing is that there is no technology to you know, convert these customers into repeat customers. So the, the system is completely for users who are looking for steep discounts. Right. So you, if you can change this value proposition. So capture information about the user, reach out to them directly in the future, things like that, mm-hmm. rather than just relying on the next steep discount. If you say the Groupon business model is you know, based on the premise is that the value proposition be a steep discount, in that sense, it's completely uh, you know, not working. Okay. Tell me about your customers. Um, so how many restaurants are you guys serving now? We serve to 2,000 restaurants right now. All right. Including uh, global hotel chains like Hilton, Intercontinental, Hyatt, also Michelin three-star sushis, Michelin two-star French restaurants. So with 2,000-plus customers... Are they all using table solutions for their table management and guest management? Or have you also integrated with existing systems? Yeah, all restaurants are using our service as restaurant and table management system. And sometimes we do integrate with other existing systems restaurants are using, such as POS, point of sales system, but not too deeply because we are essentially replacing paper and pencils. You have a number of chains as your customer, um, Okra, Hilton. So have these chains all standardized on, on your platform or are they pilot projects? In terms of intercontinental, it's their, their parent company's IHG group. So all IHG managed properties in Japan are using Table Solution. It's not a pilot project. But for overseas, we are still like, you know, in a pilot phase in some countries. Okay. But all IHG managed properties in Japan are using our system. And for overseas, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, etc., some properties of IHG are using our system. That's fantastic. You so often hear of companies in the U.S. using that playbook, you know, getting the U.S. properties and then doing the global standardization. It's nice to see Japanese startups doing the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's one of my ambitious goals. I want the company to be listed on the MBA, uh, you know, textbook. <laughs> you, want, you want a Harvard Business Review writing a case study about this? It's, it's rare, right? Hey, you're, you're well on your way, I think. No, no Japanese internet service has conquered the world market. I want to get your opinion on online reviews in Japan, particularly restaurant reviews. So I noticed, in fact, just yesterday the top-ranked London restaurant on TripVisor was some social media marketer's garden shed. In the U.S. and Europe, there's a lot of kind of review fraud. Is it the same problem exists in Japan? Can you trust online reviews here? There's the same problem in Japan, yes. Yeah? There are companies which, you know, who approach to the restaurants saying, like, you know, we can provide you, like, 10 good reviews for $5,000. There, there has been, you know, many disputes and many news about, you know, how Tabelog is uh, not trustful and, and things like that. I, I still think that it's, it's worth having all those online reviews because you can see, like, you know, clearly some users are true users. But 
the number of you know the fraudulent reviews are on increase, especially for new opening restaurants, because they rely on those companies to just uh, boost their you know opening period. So Tagalog and all those reviews are qualitative, but what we could do in the future is that we can, you know, based on a very quantitative data, we could provide like, you know, how many customers are actually repeating to that restaurant. And you can rank the restaurants by like, you know, what the ratio of repeat customers are, etc. Actually, let's, let's dig into that for a moment, because I think you guys have got access to, to some truly interesting and valuable data. It's easy for you to spot trends in terms of both of location and what types of cuisine are getting popular by like age group and gender and, and all kinds of psychographic profiles. Is that something you're working on now? Actually, we are working on a data analyzing project. We internally call that Nexus project. It's a big part of our business model, actually. We, we want to provide new value propositions from the data we gather, both from customers and restaurants. So how, how will that work? So for instance, we gather POS data. For instance, I, I love spaghetti bolognese, spaghetti meat sauce. But it's really hard to find a very good restaurant with very good spaghetti meat sauce. Because if you go to Tabalog, you can see the very top, top ranking Italian restaurants but you don't even know whether they provide spaghetti meat sauce or not. But if we have point of sales data, we can rank the restaurants by highest ratio of repeat customers ordering spaghetti meat sauce, which is clearly the restaurant has very good spaghetti meat sauce. But could you also kind of do it from the other side and say, sell the information to all the Italian restaurants saying, hey, over the last three months, women in their 20s are all ordering cream-based pastas and not tomato-based pastas. So you might want to adjust your menus or something like that. Yes, that's exactly what we're planning to do. Whether the analysis is for the consumers or whether the analysis is for the, for the restaurants. I was talking about that example I talked about is if it was a consumer-facing value proposition, that would be one example. And the other example you just mentioned is a merchant restaurant-facing value proposition. Non-chain restaurants tend to be a very conservative industry. Is there interest in that kind of data among privately owned restaurants? Yes. No one's providing that service. So, <laughs> well, but it's, it's uh, pretty obvious that restaurants talk to each other. They observe each other. They even set the pricing similar to each other. So for instance, the high quality sushi restaurants in Tokyo these days cost about $300 per person. This has been very different a few years ago. The fish price is not changing so much. What they're doing is that one, one sushi place experiments higher price. And if they succeed, all the other sushi will follow. The price has been going up recently. It's going up, yes. Okay. Does that just track the economy when economic times are good, the expensive sushi booms, and when it's bad, it's the inexpensive kaiten sushi? I think it reflects the number of tourists visiting in Japan. Okay. Actually, one thing that is unique about your system 
even on the portal side, is that it is truly bilingual, multilingual. Do you have a significant part of your business that is coming from tourism, that is coming from visitors to Japan? Yes, um, roughly 20% of our users making reservations are foreigners. Why is that? Well, because our system is the only system that supports 15 different languages. Table Solution is the only choice. Okay, well, that's a good reason. <laughs> so, also, like、uh, sushi places that are popular sushi places, they usually accept about 50% of the customers are foreigners, tourists. Really? And, and is, it mostly, is it mostly Chinese tourism, US, all over the place? All over. A number of people have told me that, that one of the biggest motivations of, of tourists who come to Japan is the food. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that everyone's going out and eating expensive sushi. You know, in an, another interview you gave, oh, maybe it was over a year ago,、mm-hmm. you mentioned that your, your customer churn so far had been basically zero. That unless restaurants had gone out of business, they were sticking with you. Is that still the case? So, for recent last six months, on average, the churn rate, the cancellation rate is 0.2%. So, 99.8% of the restaurants continue to use our service. That's fantastic numbers. Although, is that because you mentioned before that your major competition was paper and pencil? So, is that number pretty similar industry wide? Are, are your customers coming to you from your competitors or are they coming to you from paper and pencil still? That's a good question, actually.、Um, roughly 65% of the new contracts applications come from our competitors, either Toritar or Ebisol. And 35% they are restaurants who are switching from paper and pencil to table solution. That makes sense. I guess that number is only going to drop in the future as, as more and more restaurant owners at least want to try some SaaS based solution for this. Yes, I think the restaurant switching from paper and pencil is on a slight decrease. Now, a few years ago, you also launched a product called Beauty Solution, and you made the decision to, to shut it down. So, what was, your, what was your thought process around that? So, very initially, even before、uh, releasing our product, I was assuming that we can leverage the source code of Table Solution for beauty industries or lessons or events, doctors, hospitals, etc. But the reality is that when we released Beauty Solution, there w a s two problems. One was that we had only a very limited resource, development resource. And、uh, we, we were receiving so many requests from existing users, both from restaurants and beauty、uh, industry. And we had to allocate our resource into either. The other problem was that, in terms of media, there's only one big player Hot Pepper Beauty is dominant in the, in the industry. If a hair salon is using Hot Pepper Beauty, they get, on average, They get about 60% of the customers from Hot Pepper Beauty. So there, there wasn't as much demand in the beauty sector as there was in restaurants. Recruit Hot Pepper Beauty, they provide free reservation management system.、Ah. So、if the hair salon is listed on Hot Pepper Beauty, they get free reservation management system. And 60 to 70% of the reservations 
come from Hot Pepper Beauty, so there's no reason for them to switch to other. It, it's going to be yeah. I can see it being really hard to convince them to change. But but in terms of sort of the classic business strategy, you know, it, it is to to perfect your solution in one vertical and then move sideways into another. And things like beauty salons, it's it seems like a natural fit from the high level, right? So is that something you might consider in the future again? I mean, not beauty salons, but another adjacent market? Or do you plan on just focusing on restaurants? We plan to focus uh, in the restaurant industry. One of the reasons is that the restaurants are still demanding many new features. And we don't want to go into that in, in the beauty industry again because they're going to have millions of requests. That's interesting. So do you think that sort of classic VC advice is, is wrong? Is it better just to focus on a narrow set of customers and just do everything you can to make them happy? So our customers are willing to pay uh, 12,000 to 20,000 yen per month because it suits their business model. If it was something that's more simple, for instance, let's say Google Calendar, it wouldn't fit their business model, but it might be you know, good enough to manage the reservations, but they wouldn't be willing to pay a lot. Unless we have unlimited resource development resource, all the products for different industries are going to be good enough. But we want to increase the average uh, revenue per user to maintain the profitability. So in case of that VC model, VC advice, that's something good for maybe $100 million company. Maybe like, you know, have like, I don't know, like 100 engineers and make products for each industry. In our case, we have very limited development resource. And also, the restaurant industry itself is big enough. Uh, Open Table was, uh, their valuation was something like $3 billion when they were bought out by Priceline. So I think the market is big enough. And also, the other aspect would be that I love eating. I love restaurants. But when I interview hair salons, I'm not so motivated. Okay. Yeah, you, you've got to love your customers. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of passion in the, in the restaurant industry, but when I visit hair salons, uh, it doesn't like, you know, strike me. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, that customization that's, that's required within the, I don't know, I, I don't think we can call restaurants a niche because it's, like you say, it's so big. But you've recently started expanding overseas. You've opened an office in Korea. So are you finding those kind of pressures as you move internationally where you're getting uh, a lot of requirements and demands to change your product for the Korean market or the Thai market or the Singapore market? Or are the needs pretty universal? It's pretty universal. There are requests, customization requests, but they are all minor. We provide Facebook or Google Plus login for, for consumers when making online reservations. Uh, for instance, in Korea, they would request for a neighbor login. Well, that makes sense. I'd expect you'd also have to do different integration with point-of-sale systems just because the markets are different. But those are little things at the edges. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Any plans on moving into the U.S. or European markets, or are you pretty focused on Asia in the, in the midterm? 
In the midterm, yes, uh, midterm we focus on the Asian market, Southeast Asia, and also Middle East. We already have clients using our service in Abu Dhabi and uh, Egypt and Dubai. Okay. And then if you can leverage your relationships with the big chains to, to move into the U.S. or Europe, that would just be ideal. Exactly. That's what, that's what we are planning to do. Although U.S. market is, has been dominated by open table, it's a more competitive market. It's a more mature one. It's, there, there's going to be very few restaurants still using paper and pencil. Exactly. 13 years ago, when I visited uh, San Francisco for business, I called a popular restaurant and I said, I, I want to make a reservation. And the restaurant staff said, like, oh, you can make a reservation online. And he just hung up. <laughs> yes, that's American customer service for you. It's <laughs> I was shocked. That was 13 years ago. Uh, that would never happen in Japan. Yeah. Well, for two reasons. I mean, one is no, 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 no staff would ever treat a customer that way. And, and second, yeah, there's no way they'd have online reservations 13 years ago. <laughs> exactly. But actually, our, our system now has a phone integration system where when the restaurant receives a phone call, it will show like who the, who's calling. And we have a button which the restaurant can send a short message with the link to the reservation page. Nice. Why, why is there such a bottom? Because some beer gardens are so busy when they receive phone calls and when the customer says, I want to make a reservation, they will say, I will send you the link right now. So, which shocked me 13 years ago. <laughs> we were providing that means to the restaurants right now. So if, if, we're, if you're going to be focusing on that restaurant sector, you're, you're, you're going to stay in that vertical. Have you thought about going deeper into the vertical? So, for example, providing services dealing with procurement and their inventory management and things like that. Um, yes, exactly. That's what we plan to do in the next couple of years. So marketing automation, you know, big data analysis. If I use a word that's trendy, then like AI management of uh, restaurants. Okay. Let's talk a bit about Japan in general. A lot of startups that are focused in kind of the B2B market there's a real split in selling to the enterprise and selling to small and mid-sized companies. And you guys have been doing both. You're selling to large restaurant chains and you're selling to little mom and pop shops on the corner. How are the two markets different? Do you have different sales teams, different marketing approaches? Yeah, they, they are very different. So for in terms of approaching to Hilton, Hyatt, Intercontinental versus approaching to mom and pop shop is totally different. Internally, our sales team are sort of split between hotel sales versus city restaurant sales. Do you, what advice would you give to B2B startup founders? Should they focus on the big enterprise deals as early and quickly as possible, or is it better to kind of build up a reputation in the small businesses first? Interesting. I think two aspects. One is whether the market you're approaching to is suitable for approaching to all categories. Because in terms of restaurants, uh, the largest company in the market only has about 2% of the market share, which is McDonald's. So if you're only approaching to enterprise, you'll be losing 98% of the market. 
So okay. you have to approach both enterprise and small mid-sized shops. If you're selling a product to like elect- electricity company, then there's then only you have to do enterprise. <laughs> right. Well, do you find that enterprise customers are more demanding? Are they asking for bigger changes or more features? Or is that kind of the same regardless of the size of the customer? In terms of Japanese restaurants, they're as demanding as enterprise. <laughs> so they make you work just as hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes harder. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you what I call my, my magic wand question. And that is, if, if I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the legal system, the way people think about taking risks, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan. What would you change? Well, the first one is uh, education. Yeah? What, what would you change about it? Well, be more flexible. <laughs> I grew up in, in Singapore, and I still remember, but in history class, there was one semester where we watch documentaries of uh, John F. Kennedy. At the end of the semester, you had to come up with a report saying like, you know, what's the true story behind the John F. Kennedy assassination? And you have to come up with like evidence. You have to persuade the, the class. Right. So it's not just about coming up with the, the right answer. Numbers. Yeah. Like <laughs> in Japan, your history class is basically just, you know, being taught like, you know, years and dates and names. You don't think about anything. That's interesting because, I mean, I've heard that the Singapore education system is also very strict and rigid, but Japan is, is worse. Oh, sorry. I, was, I, I attended an international school. Ah, okay. Obviously, a lot of startup founders talk about the education system and, and how important it is to make it more flexible. But perhaps as a foreigner looking at Japan... I totally agree that the education system is inflexible, but I think it's more of a reflection on, on the way society is structured. I, I think most companies and most people are thinking that way, that there's, there's looking for the one right answer and that education is just a reflection of that. Do you think that people kind of grow out of that rigid training as they get older or... The reason why I say education is society, culture, way of thinking. Majority of it is formed via education. I have three kids, and uh, when I attended uh, one lesson for my kindergarten kid, the teacher would ask the entire class, what's the weather today? And the weather was very difficult. It was raining in the morning. But at the moment, it, was, it stopped raining. It was cloudy, but sometimes the sun showed. And the, and the children, they answered all different answers. Like, it's, it's sunny, it's cloudy, it's raining. And what the teacher said is, no, it's cloudy. Let's repeat. What's the weather today? Cloudy. Really? <laughs> that That's... was shocking to me. Wow. So naturally, people do have different opinions and different ideas, but you're taught you're educated that there's only one right answer. You're forced into that. <laughs> you're, you're trained to keep your ideas yes. to yourself. Yes. yes. Well, now that you're, you're on the other side of that and you're looking for employees, how do you find people that have untrained themselves? Or, or do you try to 
do you try to untrain people once they come on board? We try to hire weird people. <laughs> <laughs> so if I look at the resume, and if that person has only worked for a single company, I wouldn't hire that person because I can clearly see that he's trained into one way of thinking by that company. Right, right. So you would, you're actually looking for people who might have tried something and failed or, or you know, maybe used to be an actor or a musician or something radically different. Yes, yes. One of the wonderful things about working with a startup community in Japan is that there are so many people like that and that it is so open and welcoming to different and strange people. Do you think the attitude is changing outside the startup community? Do you think that larger companies or mid-sized companies are being a little more tolerant of eccentric people or people with different backgrounds? I think so, yes. Yeah. Um, now the government is insisting the companies to like allow uh, side jobs. That's one good change uh, in the Japanese culture. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that you know most startups are born out of side projects. So I think that's going to be a good thing. Well, listen, you. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Wow. And we're back. Use advice about focusing on a single market is a good one. And it runs counter to what a lot of founders and VCs recommend. Sure. The technology behind Table Solution is very, very applicable to the salon markets. But in most cases, technology has very little to do with your competitive advantage. Those of us coming from engineering backgrounds in particular tend to forget this, and we overvalue our technical contributions. In most cases, however, it's not about your technology. It's about your understanding of your customers. And although the same technology can often be applied to different markets, the actual customers will have very different needs. With this in mind, use strategy of deeper and deeper integration into the restaurant owner's workflow makes a lot of sense. Particularly, since that market tends to be low margin, it'll be hard and expensive for competitors to develop table solutions level of domain expertise and customer reach. Our discussion of the freemium model in B2B was also interesting. And the more I think about it, the less appropriate a freemium strategy seems to be when selling to businesses. In most cases, the costs of the business changing their workflow and retraining staff will be higher than the cost of your product, so you might as well make the sale. Now, there are two notable exceptions I see to this. First, if you're running a shadow IT strategy, where you hope that individual employees will adopt your product for free, and then you can sell a corporate package after enough employees have started using the product, freemium makes sense. Companies like Dropbox and GitHub have used this strategy effectively. The other exception would be when your SaaS product is being used only by one person in the organization. That way, no retraining is required and that one individual might be motivated to try your product to make their own jobs easier. 
The SaaS companies focused on startup and mid-sized invoicing and uh, HR fall into this category. In the end, of course, it's not how many people use your product. It's how many and how much people pay for your product. Another thing I like about Vesper is they're trying to flip the American startup playbook. They're not selling to global headquarters, but are gaining inroads in Asian markets where most travel is international and multilingual. And with more and more regional successes, they can work their way up the hierarchy to becoming a global standard. In a way, it's kind of the enterprise version of the shadow IT strategy. And it'll be great to see another Japanese startup making a truly global impact. If you've got a story about travel or restaurants not getting your reservations right, you and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 110 and tell us about it. And when you come to the site, you'll see all the links and notes that you and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And by the way, feel free to get in touch and connect with Disrupting Japan on Twitter and Facebook or even drop by our LinkedIn group. A quick search for Disrupting Japan on any of those platforms, or Google for that matter, will take you right to us. I'd love to hear from you, and we have a lot more information about Japan and Japanese startups on the social sites and our website as well. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.